As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Behan part two. Well, part one was last week. Part one and a half is on the Patreon. Mm-hmm. We talk about his brother. Z, plural. Are you making the, the the podcast like jackass? Yeah. And Did someday we'll get, we'll get a lot of fans on to do the show in a few years. And we'll just <laughs> feel like, yeah, that's great. I yeah, actually, uh, uh, Jason's not allowed near Irish history at the minute. Yeah, so yeah. You're going to have to fill in for him. <laughs> we, we had a strict contract if he could come on the show and not make homophobic slurs. And I'm sorry, he just couldn't. We got one day. We got one day and he had to be kicked off. <laughs> it's a tragedy. But I think this is this will be it now. Straight on to the end. We'll get a full encapsulation of what Behan was like. And then we'll never speak of him again. Okay. That makes it sound, I know what you're going to talk about. Yeah. Okay. Welcome to the Dodge years. Well, we'll go. We'll so where, where we get, as far as last week, uh, he's just starting to get a bit of success. Yeah, he's been he's drinking his through. way to the top in Ireland and England. Oh, you haven't seen any drinking yet. Mm-hmm. Just at the end of the last one, yeah, we were talking about that Mudridge interview. And that shoots him into being a successful drunk. But that's the BBC one. That's the BBC one. Have you seen the CBS one? No, or maybe when he's uh, he's there talking to. Oh, well, we'll we'll save it a minute because he hasn't got to the states yet. We'll okay. do Behan does New York in a little bit. But well, first of all, corrections from the first episode. So I was talking to Stephen Ryan last night. Well, this isn't so much a correction. He was just giving me more material about stuff that'll be in the end of the episode. But he, I know in the last one we were a bit. You said he was a pimp. I thought maybe pimp just meant. He wrote or not, but it turns out even by his own admission, he was a pimp. Well, what what is what even is a pimp? What did he say? He said he used to hang out in Harry's American Bar in Paris. Who did he used to uh, procure French girls for rich Americans on commission? What man hadn't? I know it sounds so much nicer when he says it. Yeah, and procuring. I'm not pimping. It's good language. Yeah, you can see on, he was going to be. I'm a... on commission. I'm not running French whores for rich American dogs. I'm I'm I'm, I'm like a connoisseur i'm a sommelier making money off of these prostitutes how in god how is he the go-between like what americans walking into a bar and like 
there's all these beautiful French women and he's like, I don't know how to... Oh, I know. I'll go talk to that sideways drunken... And... I better wake up this guy in the corner. Hey, sir, do you know how I could get a hold of any of these ladies? Say, so, yeah, I'll fucking buy me a drink <laughs> and any one of them's yours. So, yeah, and then... The ba- getting a hold of them isn't the problem. It's getting rid of them. <laughs> uh... And in that article, I did see, I know there was two variations of the story. I, he did end up staying with Beckett's cousin in Paris, his, his younger cousin, John. Beckett's cousin, okay. Yeah, so that's maybe the connection of how he, how he met him. But, so the last, yeah, the last thing we are talking about was, it's 1956. His star is rising. He's been drunk on the BBC. It's only going up from here. Apart from in that same year where he gets diagnosed as a diabetic. Okay. So that was because we'd heard that before, but I I didn't know he. So he got that late, like type two. Yeah. So that he didn't have that as a kid. Um, probably not, unless it was diagnosed. But he probably would have been dead. But so now. when his family were like, "Sure, Brendan, this is the thing. He wasn't even drinking much because yeah. he was diabetic." No, that happened because of all the drinking later on. Yeah, and in 1956, he gets diagnosed. He does not slow down on the drink. Mm-hmm. So I know there. I didn't look into this angle too much because I I don't know. I'd heard different people say in different podcasts and different stuff that his parent his, his family wasn't great to him. Ah. Just just in this sort of sense, to be like downplaying and kind of like they weren't looking after him as an alcoholic. Now, was that because, that, is that, is that because he was rich and successful and doing well? Maybe. Or no, it's probably because they were all sure we saw like footage of them in the different documentaries and stuff. They loved painting. They loved having the crack. Yeah, by the if a man shot at a guard, it was only an accident. If a, if their son drank himself into a coma, it's because of the diabetes. Well, it's even just maybe he might have been drinking a lot. Yeah, but he mightn't have been a great pint man. Like there's plenty of them say like his family saying ah he wouldn't have been a big drinker. He was yeah. kind of he's yeah, a little bit like he could have been having twelve as everyone else could have been having twenty. Oh yeah, yeah, comparatively, yeah, could have been. But I think they kind of downplay. Well, I don't know. They're, they're, yeah, it looks bad. It on looks the, bad on them. Yeah, especially the man that in the interview clip we talked about. Yeah, yeah. That you're like, yeah, this is must yeah. be heartbreaking for her mother because she's been asked about his drinking and it killed him. In the fifty, I suppose it's nineteen fifties Ireland. It's hard to recognize alcoholism, and I think of a few quotes at the end of this, specifically from his like, you couldn't you couldn't have sat that man down for an intervention, you know. Like, he wasn't one... He didn't want to stop drinking. Mm. So, yeah, there's only so much you could have done, really. And, yeah. Anyway, well, let's get on with the fun story. <laughs> In 1957, fresh off his diagnosis, he begins working on uh, his next play, On Giel, The Hostage. Mm-hmm. So he's writing this in Irish. He gets the first draft of The Borstal Boy accepted that year as well. Uh, so it's on his way. He also steps in to help defend the Pike Theatre, where he got his start. The Pike Theatre and director Alan Simpson, who'd been arrested on profanity charges during a run of Tennessee Williams' play, The Rose Tattoo. Ooh. Salacious. So the Guardi were threatening to close the play down and being led a crowd of theatre supporters in a protest outside the theatre. Oh, no, you won't. There's a quote from Anna Manahan, who was the star of the play. She said... My last speech was completely drowned out by being in the lane singing the old triangle. <laughs> he had a case of Guinness and was handing them out to the protesters saying, drink up men and women and keep the bottles to throw at the police. <laughs> so I don't know what the last speech in that Rose Tattoo play is, but I imagine it's like her big monologue 
big soliloquy and then outside is just drunk being <laughs> singing the L triangle handing out bottles to people so like <laughs> why I do declare he was lost lost before his time and the L triangle give me that fucking bottle Oh, it's really every publicans. It's like it's like the Omar's coming whistle. Yeah, like everyone's oh, locked it, locked <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, the jingle jangle. There's just people locking their doors. <laughs> um, but you know, he went back to help them out. He knew where he got his start. Mm-hmm. So in 1958, he goes to Ibiza. Ooh, yep. Yeah, couldn't find anything much about that, which is shocking. But I had to put it in because it's that's just a great image. Being in Ibiza, he got the lost there, years. It was a nice, placid family town. Yeah. It was a beautiful <laughs> yeah. holiday destination. He got there. He's like, hold on a second. <laughs> Have you guys heard about electronic music and five-year-old yokes? I'll revolutionize this town. Uh, then he's in, then he goes to Paris. He goes to Paris for the opening production of The Queer Fellow. At the same time, Angeal, the hostage, opens up in Dublin. He's then in Sweden working on a translation of Angeal. Translated into The Hostage with Joan Littlewood. She opens that in August of 1958 in the Theatre Royale. Meanwhile, The Choir Fellas opening in New York and shortly after in Berlin. So 1958, he's got, he's got The Borster Boy in production and The Hostage now coming into production. Yeah, so he's writing a book that's going to be published and he's got two plays in production. Yeah, The Choir Fellas now going all around the world and Hot in the Teals is... The hostage it's yeah. being translated and it's about to take off unheard of at the time the same playwright to be having two plays two concurrently in two different countries yeah so this is i say about two different countries the two main ones the west end and broad yeah yeah so he's he's a smash hit this is probably the start of what would be his golden period but yeah so 1959 the following year he's back in paris the hostage is selected to represent Great Britain at the Fiatal des Nations Festival. I don't like that. Mm-hmm. Team GB. Yeah. That's not right. It's not quite right. I did see earlier on when I was looking at, we're going to do the crying game for our film club for the yeah. next episode on the Patreon. And when I was Googling it there, number 26 on the, the, the British's list of best British films of all time. That's pretty shameful. Yeah. yeah. It does technically take place in Britain, though. Yeah, but it is an Irish director, an Irish... It's, not, it's a film about Irish... I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. a film... Well, we'll talk about it. In the... Whether it's is We've or got a Patreon, whoever wants to listen to all... And you get the bonus being. Oh, that's true. Yeah. yeah. And, and be, like yeah, 50 be, or 60 other episodes. And Shy Talk Radio, which is I'm now starting, which is just me playing songs by being and then talking about them. <laughs> but... um. His golden era is basically 1954 to 58, 59. That's his, I'm not going to say his happiest period, but that's his most commercially and critically successful period. Okay. And it's also quite short. Yeah. Longer than most will ever get. That's, uh, yeah, five uh, playwrights. Because that's the kind of no, thing. No, just most people. Most people, And yeah, then playing... Yeah. But it is a short. Like usually, there's like a, it was you like, have a peak, and then maybe a couple of duds, and then another resurgence. Basically, he's he's all of his good stuff comes out in this four year period. Then a little bit of shit. This is spoiling the story now. And then before he maybe he gets his resurgence or renaissance, he doesn't get his Maca- Matthew McConaughey. He's dead. Uh-huh. Yeah, dead shortly hereafter. But so yeah, in 1959, he suffers his first serious breakdown. 
by now the French had soured on him a bit. His old friend from the first half, Sinbad Vale, who'd like helped him get published in his uh, points magazine, he said, Behan drifted all over Paris, and in the end, I fear, he bored everyone who wanted to help him. He was awfully boring and abusive, insulting his friends, smashing their furniture, and destroying pictures on the walls. In the end, most of us thought he was just a bloody, drunken, show-off Irishman, the sort that is caricatured. I think now he must have wallowed it. Mm. So he's... Yeah. The, all, the, yeah. the exact sort of man that, like, yeah, the larger-than-life, fun, loving, drinking character that everyone loves until... It, would you ever shut up and stop fucking smashing stuff? Yeah. Yeah. That's sad. It is sad. We all know people like that. Ah, yeah. But in return... Well, I don't know, yeah, and this wasn't in response to that, but Behan had stuff to say about the French as well. He thought they were all very cold. He said they wouldn't give you the steam off their piss. Classic. Classic. Yeah. No, good. So he's he's they've all soured on each other. But you'd imagine that they would like it'd run dry pretty soon in terms the of piss. their yes. But like the the drunken Irish genius lout. Yeah. And then you hang around that for a night and you're like, That's mad. How could he he's crazy? And then the next day you're like, Oh, it is this is all the time. Yeah. He's just non-stop. So you yeah, wouldn't yeah. want to... I mean, imagine it's the high end of the literary world. Mm-hmm. They're not going to be out doing that. They want to sit around and smoke cigarettes and yeah. talk about ennui. He just wants to wee. You can have like a wild weekend and go nuts and be like, that was mad crack. I can't believe we did all that stuff. And then the next day he's over again with a six pack of shit French beer and ready to eat. Like, yeah, he has it never left. stops. You, you, you wake up on your own couch and you yeah. turn on the light the next morning. He's just awake with a bottle in his hand. Ready to go. Uh, so this year, 1959, is also the year of the Derek Hart interview. That I think we stuck up on the Instagram last week. That's the one. I remember the first time I saw it, I was genuinely just laughing for ages because it's such a cut between Derek Hart of the BBC. Uh, and it, like the camera's on him first and he's asking being a lot of questions off camera and it cuts to like... It looks like a sketch. If you were trying to... Yeah, with his hair is all... He's like, just... You, yeah. At this point... It's half... Like, one eye is half asleep. And yeah. He's just like... Rah. It's like Young Vale was saying there. He is a caricature. We can get into it a bit more as we go on here, but like... Yeah, well, you had the, the best analysis for this about a week ago. Or the best analogue for it. Yeah. He's Conor McGregor. He's the McGregor. Yeah. Whether it's curated by someone behind the scenes or whether it's a purposeful choice by himself i don't know so the amount of fame as well can go to your head and then the drinks and the fun and the good times around yeah. so it can be all of those things together but his trajectory of the exact same thing of like ah, success mm. people kind of like him right jesus this is mad and he's a bit cracked and he uses that to ride with that like all of those things the yeah. irish stereotype loads of irish in england and america so you can see how he gets that fame and that success and why everyone's rooting for him because there's money and things that people yeah. really enjoy. And then... Yeah, then they get sick of it. But at the minute, he's just the fun, drunken Irish man who seems half-cut and, like, looks terrible. And But then oh, at the drop of a hat, he's talking about... He's knowledgeable about history. He's knowledgeable about art. He can spin a yarn. He can do a poem. So I think he... Yeah, that's where he's at at this stage. But... uh on the 4th of March, 1959, he got arrested in Greystones for being drunk and disorderly at 1am. When he was brought to trial, Behan demanded that the case be tried in Irish, mm. which As was his, his constitutional r- yeah. right. Yeah. So there's a great transcript of this whole thing, but 
basically, yeah, so the court heard that Behan had been rat arse drunk the night before. He was found lying in the middle of a street. And when the guards tried to take him in, he said, Here are the fucking bloodhounds. Here are the fucking murderers. <laughs> he was brought into a cell and he kicked at the cell door from half one in the morning till half four in the morning. This is from one of the officers who tried to arrest him. I thought he would have had more. Well, he said, when we tried to get him into the car, he called me a fucking gutter snipe. (laughs) (laughs) Which is... (laughs) That's pretty good. Is pretty good. Now, there's just an image of him being like... Because again, I think we talked about this in the first one. He doesn't like the guards. He doesn't like the cops. I suppose maybe an hour, like he's seen people killed by the cops. But there is just a funny image of him being like, passed out drunk and be like ah the fucking murderers get off me you fucking gutter snipe well he would have been because it's why well, he's born in 1923 yeah so if you have to go back to like the his idea of the guards would have mm. been the dublin metropolitan police from the times he would have been told about yeah yeah from the good old days this is what you were saying last week but it's yeah. uh it's not like the irish police force yet and even if it is he'd still have his back up about the, like the old school police yeah I suppose he spent a lot of time. Slash also everyone now still today. Yeah, just, sure, like, yeah, yeah, It's not a very... Thank- I'm not going to be here saying blue or luminous yellow lives. <laughs> luminous yellow matter. lives should be taken into account. But, but yeah. by God, have you ever heard someone go like that? That was a lovely policeman. Usually it's nothing. Yeah. And then he's a prick. <laughs> but um, yeah, so in the end of that, he got fined 40, 40 shillings at the Bray District Court. But... This is again a funny thing of like, there's probably a, pl- I think there was literally a plaque to him down there. Like, if you get famous enough, if that was anyone else, they'd be like, ah, oh, man, it's fucking sick. Then, what, 40 shillings and let off? Judicial system in this country is toothless. And then he does it like, put a fucking plaque. You know, actually, he was, he called me a gutter snipe once. I met the man. He was a real way with words when he was calling me a fucking scumbag murderer. Anything for tourism. Yeah. So now we're into 1960. In the early 1960s, filming Brendan Behan's Island, which is based on his time out in the Blaskets, I think. By the end of that, he's in London and he's having his second serious breakdown. <laughs> I don't know what defines a serious breakdown, but he's not having a good time. But September that year, he's heading over to New York City. Who needs to be writing good stuff when you've already written three class works? He can rest on those laurels. Mm-hmm. It's time to get off the man's back. He's worked hard. It's time for a bit of a victory lap. Can a man not have a pint? Can a man not have a pint? Uh, so he goes to... He's in New York for the opening of The Hostage. And David Hannigan, he wrote the book Behind in the USA, The Rise and Fall of the Most Famous Irish Man in New York. Yeah. Yeah, so he wrote uh, He wrote a lot about this. What year did that come out? Was that the same year? No, no, because he, he found it... That'll be a rough one. I read a sort of... His introduction to it was, I think he saw Behan on some list, and he was like, oh, I didn't know Brendan Behan was over in America, that's interesting. And then, like, you know the way you find it here, when we were researching stuff, he's like, yeah, you know the way you come across a lot of times, people would be like, oh, he was a smash hit in America. But, like, it's just what people say back home. Mm. So he looked into it, he's like, I wonder, like, I don't really remember Behan being in America. He looked into it, he's like, oh my god, he was, he was massive. <laughs> he was <laughs> a superstar. Yeah, sure, he was on, like, uh, so... Did you have any notes about the CBS interview? Uh, I think in this night, well... Because they say on BBC it was like 10 million people. Not yeah. to be exaggerated, it could be like five or whatever. Yeah. But 
he does like a few TV appearances, but there's one with Jackie Gleason, who's like one of the biggest actors. He's a good friend of his. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or the friends, acquaintances, drinking buddies, who knows? But they, well, but they do that they, that together. They do meet each it, other, yeah. And it's the same uh, flip of like there's Gleason talking and the, whoever the intermediary is, uh, or the interviewer. And when they cut to be, and he's basically asleep. And yeah. he's like, Jackie, you said, you were always said. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's real sad. But you're like, this is, and again, kind of like McGregor. Yeah, the stars faded, and you try to go back to old tricks. Yeah. Uh, I think um, you're, ju- you're jumping ahead of the it's the tie. At this point, he's on his rise still in the New York. He's, he's good. Yeah, but you've already mentioned the thing that goes wrote the book. who's like, the rise and yeah, fall. Yeah, yeah, the rise and fall. Yeah. <laughs> The rise and blank. We'll Wait, in America, does this fall mean greater rise? It means autumn. <laughs> it's the rise and autumnal season of Brendan Behan. But so yeah, he said I was yeah, his first trip in 1960. One minute he's discussing Joyce with James Thurber and Burgess Meredith. The next, he was on the front pages for drunkenly rampaging across the stage during a Broadway production of The Hostage. So, oh, I think, what, so he's allowed to get drunk and start screaming the old triangle in Dublin but as soon as he goes to America. Oh, suddenly that's not okay. Well, apparently you said he did you that wanted Irish. This is Irish. This is what you... I am Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> My favourite McGregor put then was... I don't know who... This, I just remember there's a panel of all of them, all the big UFC boys talking and someone's just trying to shout something down at him and he just, in pure Dublin fashion, just scrunches up his face he's like... Who the fuck's talking? He's like, who, just, who the fuck is that guy? Yeah, yeah. yeah and Jeremy just, Stevens. Like, completely shut down. <laughs> yeah, that was like, he just hit a thing where, like the same with like Beanisms of like McGregorisms. Yeah. Just he had so many meme-worthy moments and little gifts and clips of just like genius funny lines in a sport where most lads aren't that funny. Yeah. Because they haven't grown up in like north inner city because that's not that's not a genius line that's just the the sort of put down that all lads lads who played sports and like have grown up in a like in a rough enough area where it's just non-stop constantly berating your friends back and forth yeah just just, never giving a lot of second now just sharp dublin wit born out of toxic masculinity since the age you were three but like yeah all the other tough lads would be like yeah i've been training harder than i'm gonna tonight i'm gonna make you suffer and then just be shut the fuck up you fucking pig what fuck off and like that's you can't contend with that yeah those people weren't ready for that you'd have americans to literally go and like i'd I'd chat to them they'd be like oh mcgregor is like yeah you'll do fucking nothing yeah that is just something irish people like lads in dublin will say and he, he said it and it became like a catchphrase yeah Shut the fuck up, you tick. Is it's taken America by yeah. storm. I know there was one that he said, uh, "Jesus loves a trier." Yeah, that is, or God loves a trier. Yeah. It's like, yeah, that's a classic Irish mm. thing. Like I've seen like fa- like huge YouTube channels breaking down things like this is a this is some genius line. You know? <laughs> no, that's just he's just saying what people on the streets in Dublin say. And yeah, in fairness, yeah. being could have been close enough to the same. So he was giving out about uh, was it Flan or was it? Yeah, J.M. Singe. Yeah, Singe. Putting yeah. his ear up against the wall of the tenements and taking off the stuff of his own. But I guess the unwritten bit of that is that, like, he's like, I did the same, but I lived it. Mm. <laughs> I'm allowed Rob off inner city Dublin because that's my life. Which, I mean, there's probably truth to that. Um, but his drunken exploits are getting them into the papers. So he arrived off the plane into New York that time, uh, and there's a load of paparazzi standing outside. He does about 50 interviews in the first week. Everyone wants a bit of beating. There's a story about him being arrested in an L.A. restaurant for being drunk and disorderly. 
Then he was bailed out by the restaurant and brought back the next night as a star attraction. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I get that sounds maybe like a story, but then there's so many things. There's so many things attributed to him that just sound a little bit witty and like stuff. But then there's stories like this. You're like, did this happen? But then there's like stories that did happen that are equally stupid as that. So it's not hard to believe that this sort of stuff was happening to him. Uh, apparently, even during the production of his play, he was putting on overalls and going out to paint like one of the producer's houses in New York. <laughs> He's a man of the people. But that's like, um, I think it's Peter O'Toole or else it's Richard Harris. I think it's Peter O'Toole yeah. that uh, like used to spend summers or different at different points of his life going out to the west of Ireland or to small little places uh, around Ireland and just being like a farmhand. Yeah. Or, and then people in the village go, I didn't even know he wrote. They're like, yeah. How did all this come to pass then? How do we know about this? If obviously you would see them yeah. in famous films eventually, but I wouldn't put it past some people. It's just a PR thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. To be like, geez, he's mad and some kind of a whimsical, fantastic artist. Or yeah. did he think about that and know this will come out and it'll it'll make me seem amazing? Maybe, maybe. Like a rapper who shoots someone so he can get street cred. Yes. Or like, it was yeah, Vigo Mortensen walking from set to set for Lord of the Rings, just so he looked travel. I don't know. Maybe he's. It's hard to know. Like, is he is he doing it performatively because he wants to prove that he's different and he's still like at heart a working class Dublin man? That's where his bread is buttered. Or is he doing it to, to wind people up? Mm. Is he doing it? It's pretty funny. It's pretty funny. Is he doing it? Yeah, just because it's a also, story. Wasn't, weren't most of the accounts he's like a pretty bad painter. Ah no no. He, can't he was be as good that. as any of them. He when was he sh- an alcoholic. He was a pimp. He, he was a great people. Pimp. He might have touched people. Yeah. But by God, you don't say anything about his painting and decorating. He would get. He'd come in and he'd do the best day's work between the hours of half four in the evening and half five. But so why uh, would you want all four walls painted? That's <laughs> it's new. It's how they're doing it back in Europe. It's nouveau modern. I've lived in Paris. I used to tell people that about the first time I lived in Texas, I was only there for a year. It was like, they don't have the same like beds as us. Or if you move into an apartment, uh, you don't, it doesn't come furnished. Yeah. So you don't have a bed, like a like a, be- a base for a bed. They call it like a box spring or whatever. Like, And there's multiple parts and you're like, it's going to cost you a couple of hundred quid just to get the base yeah. to then get a mattress to put on. It was like, I'm only here for a year and just throwing it down mattress straight on the floor on the, yeah. bohemian style yeah. like an artist and then anytime a girl would ever reference like why don't you have a box spring or a base i'd be like this is how we do it in ireland <laughs> it's like japan yeah it's, it's cultured uh look at our football team the bohemians mm-hmm. may i say any more why don't you have any paintings or decorations on the wall ah that's because i'm a serial cutter <laughs> why have you just got this giant congolese flag on your wall let me tell you a little place called Carlo. Uh, so then November, he was on The Open End, a panel show that included Anthony I, Quinn. I don't know what you were going to I thought you were going to say it's New York. I was like, Opie and Anthony. He was on The Opie and Anthony <laughs> show before it was kind of, before it was wrong. But uh, it included, yes, yeah, so the panel show included Anthony Quinn, star of Zorba, that Greek film that was... Scored by Mikas Theodorakis that we talked about in the first half. It's all connected. Mm-hmm. That's the only reason he was in there. But now it's in two separate halves. So I take it you've forgotten about Mika. I did. <laughs> yeah, so did I. <laughs> but he was on it. Uh, Jack Lemon from Glenn Garrick Down Ross. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Tennessee Williams from 
play. Yeah. Celeste home and Brendan Behan. What a lineup. During that time, he had a little poem about the Church of England. He said, Don't speak of your Protestant minister, nor of his church without meaning or faith. For the foundation stone of his temple was the bollocks of Henry VIII. It's mm. pretty good. It's pretty good. I like that. Uh, so he also did an interview to an American audience talking about Lenin and Stalin and communism. This is all at like the height of the Red Scare. He's still like he's not walking around with a hammer and sickle, but he is still talking openly about communism at a time when like it's nineteen sixty. Like he wouldn't be at that sort of crack. Mm-hmm. But he referred to himself as a Catholic and a communist, saying, "I'm a communist by day and a Catholic as soon as it gets dark." What what is what does any of this mean? <laughs> Sounds good, but in New York, he was chased through the streets of Granite Village by one Bob Dylan. I've heard this. Yeah, who simply wanted to touch the hem of Behan's coat. Um, but as we talked in the Patreon episode, his brother had different interactions with Bob Dylan. What if he had stolen Bob Dylan's coat and Dylan just wanted it back? Well, that's a possibility because he was also chased by Steve McQueen, the actor. But that's because he wanted to fight him because Behan had punched one of his mates in a bar. <laughs> but uh, in the other positive stories, the poet Adam Ginsberg yes. has a nice story about him. He said they're all him and his partner were out for a meal. And he said, the thing I remember most vividly is towards the end of the meal, I went downstairs to the men's room and he got up from the table and followed me. He stopped me in the hall outside the toilet and asked me, have you got any ammunition? Ammunition? Money? Uh, no. He then took out a wad of bills and gave me $80. He had no reason to do that except he was open-hearted and I guess he was making money on his play. Mm-hmm. Now, another way to read that is that he followed very openly gay man Alan Ginsberg down to the bathroom and offered him 80 and gives him 80 quid. Say, like, well, no such thing as a free meal, pal. <laughs> But yeah, who knows? He was um, he was bad with money, but in the sense that he was very generous with it. Mm. Too generous, some said. Yeah. Like someone in a friend group who decides, I know, do you know what? It'll be easier. I'll pay for the whole bill and everyone else just revolute me what you had. Yeah. And then we're, we're, I'm, over, I'm down 150 quid. <laughs> Did you include the tip? No. I'm still down 100 quid. Well, someone had the 12 espresso martinis. That was you, Brendan. Yeah. That was that was you. His drink of choice was uh, champagne and sherry. Oh, I didn't say that at the start, actually. That was a, a very bad for diabetes. That was very bad. Very, but it's also yeah. like a like a young Jack L. Sullivan. Bixen. Oh, sure, yeah. yeah. But a much older... Yeah, Sully's far gone at this point. Oh, God, he is, yeah. yeah oh, God. But, he, but just mixing different drinks that have no right to be mixed together. No. Just because they're class individually. Um... But he still had he still had an old way with the words. I think it's during that trip the queer fella got some negative reviews in Berlin and New York. At some point, he said to the press when they were asking about the reviews, "This is a famous line of his. That's actually there's a brass likeness of him outside the Palace Bar in Dublin. It's shocking. It's a tar- <laughs> It's terrible." <laughs> but the quote that they use for that is a quote attributed to him. Or is it actually what he looked like? Maybe. It is actually an artist's representation of what he looked like on any given uh, weeknight. But he said, Drama critics are a lot like eunuchs in a harem. They see the tricks done every night. They know how it's done, but they can't do it themselves. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah. I've heard, yeah, eunuchs in a brothel. 
the same. It's the same with all of his quotes. You see them all slightly different. It's obviously tuned up to make more sense. Maybe but, uh, he was saying it a lot of times in different, like in slightly different ways. Probably, probably. But uh, that's a good one. That's one that people probably throw at critics a lot. Be like, yeah, your work is shit though. <laughs> um, so he would chat with Elizabeth Taylor, lunch with Groucho Marx at the Brown Derby in Hollywood. Meet with Jackie Gleason to discuss the possibility of writing something just for him. And throw up on Arthur Miller outside the Chelsea Hotel. It's a life of glamour. <laughs> you like that? <laughs> you, it very rarely comes up. You often hear of like, oh, these people matter. Like this person chased him down. He wanted to fight. Not just being like just different people in history. Very rare you'll hear a story of someone saying he got sick on him. Yeah. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. And Arthur Miller, no less. <laughs> well, I was getting, uh, was on holiday there the other day, and uh, heard an Irish couple. Yeah, heard this one go. Do you think that's gonna come out? Look at me shoe. Do you think that's gonna come out? They're getting a uh, flight back from Italy, mm. and she'd after spilling chocolate or drink or something on her shoe, and she was very upset about this. Oh yeah, and she wouldn't. It was like I could have been basically sick. Yeah, but she was very upset about this, and the boyfriend didn't just take the easy way out and go, "Yeah, we'll fix that tomorrow." Just not even a problem. It's happened a hundred times before. Gone and done. Easy. He just turned to her and said, "Oh, you don't know, but you're a bad woman." <laughs> just nice. Just making life instantly terrible for himself. What the fuck did you say to me? I bet it wouldn't come out as well. It was very white shoes. They were like Yeezys. No point lying to her. No, know? that's the thing. It's better just to sit in angry silence or angry angerment for, for the, the whole, whole plane. <laughs> yeah. Fair play to that man. But uh, so in between, that's kind of his first run at New York. He's a celebrated raconteur. He's a drinking man. Back home. People want a bit of the be in action. He's a lot. Yeah, you were talking about the CBS interview. He's on television. He's on The Open End or whatever that panel show was. Back home, they're trying to get him in on Irish TV. Trouble is, he's a notorious drunk. It's mm-hmm. hard to get him sober on TV. So, Eamon Andrews, who we talked about. It's hard to put three drunks on telly at the same time. Exactly. And uh, the cameraman's also drunk, so there's not room for a third. But we talked about Eamon Andrews and This Is My Life a bit at the start of the last episode. It's like, uh, they just bring a celebrity on and talk about their life, basically. Mm. Uh, and they wanted to do it with Behan. But it's hard to pin down. Uh, but they come up with a plan... Whenever Behan was back in Dublin, Eamon Andrews wanted to get an interview with him. So the plan was to pick him up the night before, bring him to a hotel, and then just interview him in the morning. So that they knew he'd be sober to be able to get a bit of control over it. No. no. That's, if you get him that night, interview him that night. No. There's no way. Do you mean to like lock him in a room so yeah. you can get him the next morning? All yeah. right. That, that is bring better. them. As in, they're going to bring pick him up from his house. Bring him to a hotel get and him, just keep him there. Get him drunk in the hotel room. No, they want him clean and sober. That's for not going to happen. You need to find ways around this. Um, well, this is it. They're this basically going to lock a good him up. Fixer. You need someone who can... They understand how the game works. <laughs> what would you do? I'd have brought him to the room yeah. and I'd have said, look, here's all the whiskey you want. Okay. Here's whatever else you want. Here's a young Allen Ginsberg. Here's a <laughs> bottle of whiskey. <laughs> and then fall asleep. Lock the door. Yeah come back the next morning and then do the interview that's a good idea they're doing that but just without the whiskey and the yeah but see he's a notorious alcoholic who's going to want to drink that night but he's all so are you going to tell me now is that he 
broke out or he didn't he either didn't do it or he agreed to it then left got well, got drunk and then didn't show up for the interview no to be honest i think the interview went well but that's not what ah. this story is about i don't know but the well they went down to pick him up and they're going to bring him out to a hotel in bray and like basically lock him there for the night but they go out to his house to pick him up the day before they go up to bean's door and give him a little knock and he stumbles out to the door and says i'll be with you in a minute and then slams the door in their face leaving them stuck out in the rain <laughs> so the two boys are kind of looking around a bit, being like, ah, fuck, what do we do now? They go back to sit in the car out of the rain, and Bian opens the door and says, why don't you fucking come in? And he says, that, that's very hard, Brendan, to come in through a slam door. And he says, ah, he's only trying to keep the fucking cat in. <laughs> <laughs> so they go in anyway, and the place is a bit of a mess, and he describes this old drunk sitting in one of the chairs with like a bottle of stout in one hand, and he's just gone. He says to Behan then, are you coming, Brendan? And Behan says, oh, Beatrice is packing the bag. Then yells up the stairs, have you got the fucking bag packed yet, Beatrice? And she says, just a minute, darling. <laughs> so Brendan takes out a whiskey bottle, pours everyone a drink. And Andrews describes, like, he just keeps, out of nowhere, keeps going on about, like, ah, fame's a great fucking thing. But you'd know all about that then on the television, I suppose. I came home today in a fucking taxi. And when I got there, the taxi driver wouldn't take the fucking fare. He recognized who I was. Marvellous. Well, that's great, Brendan. I'm delighted you're getting the recognition you deserve at last. And Bean just keeps, like, banging on about the taxi driver. He's like, Jess, this is a fucking great outing. I tried to give him the money. He wouldn't take it. Fame's a great outing. And they're there just... He's just going on that loop for a while until Beatrice comes down anyway with the bag all ready to go and they're heading out the door Behan gets the rest of the bottle of whiskey and he pushes it into the drunk lad's hand who's sitting on the chair with the stout and he says there you go Mick that's for you the old fella tries to say thanks but he's gone he's bollocks they're walking out the door and Andrews goes to Behan Brennan who is Mick and Behan goes oh him that's the fucking taxi driver <laughs> <laughs> That's a great story. Uh, I ever tell you about the uh, R.I.P. now to Christy from the village uh, back home, but he's a he was albino, blind or Albanian. Is there no one now? He's an albino um, blind man who yeah. had enough kind of sight. He'd be allowed to drive a, a mobility scooter, mm. and he'd be able to drive it down to the pub. <laughs> That's all you need. <laughs> and he, uh, one time he'd got, well, he got too locked to drive home, so he had to get one of the other lads from the pub to drive him back. Yeah. And so he drove him up to the house, and he was like, ah, sure, you have to drive me the whole way in. Come on and have a whiskey before you head back to the pub. Come on in. And he said he got so drunk that he couldn't then drive home. So Christy drove him home. <laughs> and then when he got back, he, he he got out with the car. And then Christy was like, right, I'll drop the car back to you tomorrow. <laughs> he took the keys off and told him to fuck off. He's not letting him drive the car back. So he ended up three times as far from his house. Still not able to get home. <laughs> That's great. 
Ah, <laughs> uh, the 80s were a wild time. Ah, and the 70s and the 60s. Yeah. But I just wanted to throw in a couple of a couple of fun bits before we get into the, the, the bad decline now. Because um, not everyone back home had the same feeling as that Mick the taxi driver. <laughs> Uh, Taoiseach Sean Lamass in that summer of 1960 he complained about Irish journalists, playwrights and novelists sustaining anti-Irish propaganda through representations of stage Irish men in their work even the BBC television service rarely if ever presents a play about Ireland without characters moving around in clouds of alcoholic vapour which is a fair fair comment I mean these days, even these days I think we kind of We've left that reputation behind a little bit, which is what you think until you go travel anywhere else. Yeah. But back then, it was most Americans. Well, it wasn't. When was JFK? We weren't. We didn't yet have a, have 70, a Mick. Yeah. No, because he's dead. 60, he oh. shot in six. No, the moon landing is, if you believe that sort uh. of shit, is 69. So JFK would have been shot early 60s. But is he in the White House at this stage? Actually, I think he is. is that, that, uh, he's president in 1961 so he's just about to go in actually I think I left it out of this but there is a story that and it might just be a story that Brendan and Beatrice Bean were invited to the inauguration at the White House and they just sent a letter to Ireland just saying Mr. and Mrs. Bean Ireland <laughs> <laughs> which would work I know a lot of people meme about like how good the post is but like there's only one well there's a load of Beans I suppose actually you're right yeah but at that stage... Well, it was Brendan and Beatrice being Ireland. I was like, well, okay, I know who that is. But actually, before we started recording this, we were watching Post Malone singing The Owl Triangle. Mm-hmm. Post Malone, more like on Post Malone. Because <laughs> oh. he's Irish now. I don't know. Singing The Owl Triangle in a pub. True, true. It was good. It and was I, good. You were shocked by Post Malone, and I was kind of, ah, oh, that's class. I'm way more obsessed with the the locked fat bald Dublin man who's no, singing it's... out a key and he just won't allow the the famous singer who's in <laughs> the pub and everyone wants to listen to him yeah. and this lad is just coming in he's singing off key he's yeah. out of time and he's and the ultra dead. Uh, what the hell is that shocking? It's shocking to see Post Malone in the Dublin pub. That man exists in every oh, yeah, pub. everywhere. Yeah, but you think at some point someone would have been like, "Shh, that's the thing." There would have been, oh God, no! He would have been. No, he no, would have no, heard no, people no. shushing and been like, "Who's talking during this song?" I say, like, "No, no, no." <laughs> this is for you, Mick. And just leave the boy sing. Oh, we had a great old session. There was a fella in Malone. I think he's one of the postmen. Uh, he he did a good old turn. I was actually I was in Galway the other week with uh, uh, silent producer Dan. Oh yeah. And uh, we ended up in the, what's it called? Is it the Crane? Let's just say, uh, before we get into it, and he doesn't produce the show anymore. No, he didn't. He so recorded. don't blame all the bad audio yeah. on him. <laughs> That's he actually produced true. it back when it was good. For his second season, he did yeah, all of yeah. that, and it sounded great. It sounded then, great. Yeah, we haven't been near him since, unfortunately. No. <laughs> but I went out and had pints with him. I love Dan. Uh, but he, we went, to, I think it was the Crane, and it was upstairs. There's They have Beamish there. It was good. Yeah. Um, but there was a trad session and there was an old man who was wearing an iron jumper so thick it looked like it was crushing his bones yeah. that's how frail the man was he must have been about 90 and he was playing an accordion and it was that chance where everyone just a hush came over the entire place and everyone was like yeah this could be the last time he ever plays it now he could have been saying that people could have been doing that for the last 20 years yeah. but it's the last you never know and everyone shut up apart from this these two couples 
directly in front of us who just would not stop talking. Yeah. I want to say they're like a South Dublin accent. Yeah. But they did. But it <laughs> and they just wouldn't stop and everyone just kept shushing and then they would just keep talking, maybe like two decibels less each time. Yeah. But they would just keep doing it. And eventually it got to the point where it was like shh 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 shut the fuck up and listen to the old man. It was great. And they did for a minute. It yeah, just yeah. it got to the that's what shh is short for. Shut the fuck <laughs> up. Yeah. That's probably true. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, so now this is it the year of the decline <laughs> i feel like we've been saying that since the start of this episode but 1961 january 1961 a fine day in the graveyard a one-act play written in irish rejected by gail lynn do you think they just let him put on anything he wanted yeah he's one of the most famous international playwrights at the minute and now he's putting up work I feel like they give him a lot of leeway just to have that sort of star name attached to it, but he's producing stuff and they're like, ah, it's actually... Even for the niche Gaelic Irish player board, this is shit. Yeah. That March, March 13th, 1961, himself and Beatrice arrive in New York, part two. This time, the Gaelic Society of Fordham University had invited them to march in the St. Patrick's Day Parade, only a couple of days away. But the organizers of the parade didn't want him or the negative headlines anywhere near the parade. So they disinvited that Gaelic society. <laughs> we have a semi-religious, almost sacred feeling about the parade, said James J. Comfort, a justice of the Court of Special Sessions. <laughs> which I don't know if that means what it means now. Special Sessions. I'm in charge of the Special Sessions, the big ones, St. Patrick's Day, birthdays, that sort of thing. But he was organizing the parade. But he said, we don't want a personality who is being advertised so extensively as a common drunk. Newsweek magazine gave Behan the opportunity to write an article in response. And in there, he has that line of, I now have a new theory of what happened to the snakes when St. Patrick drove them out of Ireland. They came to New York and became judges. 
which is great. We've probably come off uh, a little poorly in terms of we've mentioned a lot of like, sure, anyone could have said the user. He's said them and they move around and change a lot. We haven't given him the credit for he has hundreds of just phenomenal lines. Yeah, yeah. I did catch myself of that in the first episode. There's no reason to doubt that he said any of these things. Yeah, He's I love, easily capable yeah, of And I love like his work. Oh, it's, yeah. yeah I, there's something very funny about calling someone a snake. I think it has real connotations in this country that it's... A gutter snipe. You gutter snipe, you fucking snake. <laughs> he was asked at some point, why are there no Behans in New York? And he said, <laughs> the top three reasons. They don't have any money to go there. They wouldn't work if they got there. And thirdly, they wouldn't be let in. <laughs> so... In that march, instead, so he can't go in the parade. Instead, he travels 11,000 miles across the USA. What I was going to say, is that the time then he does that interview down by, is it down by the river, I think, where he's some American man interviewing him? They're both standing up outside, and he's asking him, like, what are you doing back in America now, Brendan? And what's the plans that he's just locked? I'm writing a play, was it something leg, peg leg? Yeah, Richard's. Richard Richard's cork leg maybe cork leg that's it yeah Richard's that cork right. legs that's his that becomes again a running theme and it's like he, from, he's writing this for eight yeah for years, years and years for, that's yeah. like the Axel Rose like Chinese democracy yeah yeah, yeah. although he did release that finally, finally yeah yeah well maybe Brendan would have if he hadn't done <laughs> yeah sure but what were they saying in the interview no it was just you could see it and it, he does come across as like uh, like a school child that's like. No, I swear I did my homework. I'll just uh, bring it in tomorrow. Yeah. You'll see. You'll see. You'll see. <laughs> um, but so, yeah, so that in that trip, he's traveling across the USA, uh, Canada, Mexico. He spends two periods during this time in hospital. At this point, he's drinking himself into diabetic comas. I don't, I would imagine he's not the sort of man to keep on top of the insulin. Mm. And actually, not even sure how readily available incident is as a treatment and then but at the main thing, that's kind of besides the point because he's drinking sherry and champagne mixed together so it doesn't really matter how much he's dealing with his medicine after that but he was hired he's still a celebrity he's hired at three grand per week to compose a jazz show at well, i guess the mc a jazz show with all the big acts of the day including nina simone but during a trial run of the show in toronto behan went out on the tear and ended up spending a night in jail what about we all play the old track? <laughs> Just yeah, because the play gets pulled because of this. But we were so close to having him walk out in front of Nina Simone, being like, "Ah, the old triangle." <laughs> and they finish it. And he's like, oh, no, 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 no. "How about we play the old triangle again? Again, do it again." It's like, we can't do it again. It's free form. <laughs> um. But yeah, he's, a, he's interviewed them and he gets out of prison the next morning saying, On Monday, Mayor Nathan Phillips gave me a pair of gold cufflinks. And on Wednesday, they gave me a pair of steel handcuffs. I wonder which of these are the proper credentials for a writer. The cufflinks are an honour. The handcuffs show I'm not a statue yet. That's good. That's good. That's good. The play still gets cancelled. <laughs> this jazz show still gets pulled, but it's good. I'm sure that that helped the producers. <laughs> it's like, ah, we were right to trust him. Julie has a way with words. Um, so while he's in the States, yeah, so across 1960 and 1961 is two trips in the States. He's cheating on his wife round the clock. Mm-hmm. She's with him some of the times, and then when she's not, he's fluting about with men and women. Mm-hmm. Um, so his niece, Janet Behan, 
is quoted as saying he was a sexaholic. Oh, thank God. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I thought you, you <laughs> no, phrased that really I did, poorly. I did. Sorry. That was, uh, that was a bad mislead there. But she said he was a sexaholic. My father, her father's Brian Behan. My father used to say that Brendan would get up on the back of a Drimna bus. All of ways of words, really, the beans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's um, a class, yeah, that's like you know, get up on a hairy hand or yeah, yeah. get up on the back of a Drimna bus. But there's and there's all these kind of accounts of like him drunkenly because he'd be talking in front of his wife as well, and people would just think he's being like ah, he's just being cheeky, and then he'd get them alone. He's like, oh no, he was very serious about this. Uh, so in Hollywood, he got into a relationship with Peter Andrews after meeting them at the YMCA. Andrews was a Dundalk boxer and seaman who was the youngest man to get his American naval ticket. Did he did being just here seaman? He did, yeah. Well, again, we were joking about this in the first half, and it's kind of like, I saw this written up, and it's like, yeah, it was really his type, you know, from a working class Dundalk family. Mm. It's like, it was just a handsome sailor slash boxer. <laughs> That was his type. I'd say there's a handsome boxer, not too common. True, but I think a he was Dundalk a Dundalk man, handsome. <laughs> Even rarer still. Um, so there's a classic story. He sailed around the world for years. Then he wanted to become an actor and went to Hollywood and met a drunk older celebrity man who knew all the connections and would make sure he was seen to properly. But uh, Well, he would have seen probably Jack Doyle make it. Yeah boxer turned celebrity turned big actor yeah yeah there's a good chance another irishman could do it true um peters is that that yeah so like he had an alcoholic father who used to beat him up if he didn't bring back drink money from so, so brendan was his type too he was too yeah his type as well uh he wrote i think peters wrote in his biography that he he used to get money by like having sex with tourists and soldiers back in the dock whoa, should- whoa 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 tourists in dundalk i know that's where the whole story falls apart for me it's the 1940s honey where are we going to i heard dundalk is lovely this time <laughs> he brought it to court and lost on that yeah 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 <laughs> you gotta prove that this town's ever had tours open and shut, open and shut. but um yeah so they have a relationship i think he, he, peter's is the only person to have written the only man to have written to have um sexual contact with him Okay. There's lots of others, and there's allusions to others, but like Piers, but they're all working class, so they couldn't write. They couldn't write exactly. But Piers was a boxer, so naturally, after his boxing career, went he had to go, he had to write a book. <laughs> he wrote a biography, but apparently, they were very close. He acted as his chauffeur and bodyguard and stuff when he was in uh, in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. But in San Francisco, according to Dublin-born Valerie Danby Smith, she had a one-night stand with Behan after the opening of his play that left her pregnant. Ultimately, giving birth to his son, Brendan Jr., in a New York hospital in February of 1962. So, Valerie was also the secretary of Ernest Hemingway. So, yeah. she had been working for Hemingway before meeting. She knew Behan from back in Dublin, as just being like everyone knew the Behans kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And she would knew Brendan personally as they grew up a bit. But she was back in Dublin visiting the Behans in between working for Hemingway and. He convinced her to work with him as a secretary for a while. Then they were over in San Francisco. The play opened up. And then from her quote, she said, I was awakened a short while later when Brendan let himself into my room with a key he must have acquired when he made my hotel reservation. He had met her when she was 16 and he was about 33. (laughs) He got her pregnant at 22. 
yeah, it's not good. And this is one of those cases where, like, she always thought he was just being, like, a, you know, joking flourish because he'd be talking in front of his wife about stuff. But then, uh, not so much. But Not Brendan B. and Brendan B. Hansy. B. Hansy. So she phoned Brendan in January of 1962 with the news that she was pregnant. He was elated, saying that he'd come over and himself and Beatrice would raise the child as their own, but nothing came of that. Uh, so speaking on the Marion Finucane show in November of 2009, Valerie described it as an unfortunate happening, but as it has all transpired, my son is a terrific fellow, and I was the winner in this, I would say. But we did have a couple of rocky years as it wasn't planned. They didn't teach us family planning at the convents in Ireland back then. We were all very innocent. How long... Wait, so she, when did she move over? Do you find out when she, when she moved to America? Why was she Hemingway's secretary? Don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know what the, she just uh, she moved, I think she was Hemingway was in Paris as well, so was, I think she'd worked in Paris with, with Hemingway as like a like seventeen or eighteen year old. I guess so. Yeah. And went, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, which is also, but we'll get into him now in a second. So Behan's niece Janet, she wrote a play about him and had a character named Suzanne that was kind of a stand-in for Valerie. I think Janet had said when Beatrice came across to New York to see him, he asked for a divorce because he was going to have a son with this other woman. They were going to live together, which meant he wouldn't have to leave America. But Janice is also like from the sort of family gossip. I'm not sure if the child was Behan's or not. I guess it was never a paternity test done. But it seems plausible. She was pregnant and like the timelines add up. But Just Valerie went wait on... Wait till the child is five. Give him his first pint. <laughs> yes, here he takes Give him it. a pen and paper. <laughs> well, the pen and paper mightn't factor in much because Valerie went on to marry Hemingway's child. So the illegitimate child was raised Brendan Hemingway. So mm. from an artistic background, either way. But their marriage lasted about 20 years. So the so initially when I read this in one in some accounts, no, in all of the accounts really, it kept saying that uh, she married Gregory Hemingway. But then in one footnote of something else, it, re- it was references Gloria Hemingway. Gregory is their dead name. And then their whole Wikipedia page is just about them, that Hemingway had a trans daughter called Gloria Hemingway. Ah, and for some reason, it's still reported in all these other things as Gregory. But Gloria Hemingway, uh, a trans woman from Missouri, basically she just kept going to Africa to shoot elephants. She was quoted as saying, I went back to Africa to do more killing. Somehow it was therapeutic. Is it the, the daughter of Ernest Hemingway? Yes. That her life was just going through transition? Yeah. They then been sent over to Africa. To just- oh, no, she wanted to go to Africa. She said she used to just drink, and then she was she was applying to get a license to be a hunter in Africa, but she failed because of the drinking. You needed a license back then? <laughs> Apparently. Well, it's, otherwise, you're just doing it freelance. <laughs> but I just thought that was such a funny... And she loved shooting elephants. Anyway, it's good therapy. Uh, in 1962, it's July... The hostage has been selected as the best play of the season in France. Two months later, Behan's in a home for alcoholics in London. Uh, He tried going to France to stop drinking, but it doesn't take. So in 1963, he travels to the US for the last time. Apparently, he told his wife that he was going out for a pint and then took a taxi to the airport. (laughs) Got from Dublin to Shannon. He didn't say where he was getting the pint. (laughs) I just going to New York for a drink. Um, so it's here he tapes the confessions. In, in the documentary we'd seen, the, uh, she's Beatrice said like that. They, they ask her why didn't you leave him? Yeah, and she's like, ah, he was so low. I was kind of hoping he'd get better before I could leave him. Yeah, like, get get out. Yeah, you can kind of see that, and 
But he's leaving he you. Was, he's, he's like cheating on you. Yeah. He's, you have all the options. You have all the options. It's called being trapped in a bad relationship. Yeah. And also, he tried to leave you. Basically, I've seen it in a few places that if he hadn't have died, the end result would have been him that divorce and then him moving to America. Yeah. And then, you know, who knows? Down the line, he probably would have pined. He would have done his Patrick Kavna. I actually hate Dublin. I'm <laughs> moving back to the Stones. But it, certainly it seems like this would have played out that he would have just moved and left her. But we don't get that far because he dies. And yeah, there's a certain, like, she's in it and she doesn't want to leave him when he's at his lowest. But he's at his lowest for a long while. Yeah, but it's like, he's at his lowest. He's like, maybe he'll come. Oh, he went lower. Yeah. Uh, maybe he'll come back. Oh, yeah. no, he went. No, that's much worse. Um, But when he's in New York this time, he, this is when he's, he's, he's dictating a lot of stuff. He tapes Confessions of an Irish Rebel, which is supposed to be pretty good, but... At this point, it's basically his American producers or his American agents can't get him to write anything. So they're just sitting in front of a tape recorder. It hasn't got the same magic as the old stuff. But he's supposed to be working on his next play, Richard's Cork Leg, the whole time. Yeah, since like whatever, 1961. But it's not happening. Yeah, he records Brendan Beans in New York in 1964. I think it's at this point, his publishers try and get him into the Chelsea Hotel to stay there and attempt to keep him writing. Did you ever read about it or... Uh, I know mostly from that Leonard Cohen song but it's like just we're all the bohemian people of the day hung out in New York stayed in this hotel oh he don't put him there well it was, it was the only place that would take him everywhere else had kicked him out oh, okay. <laughs> because of his behaviour <laughs> yeah. and these people they were kind of used to used to dealing with this sort of drunken artistic person and there's also a certain prestige with the place like an artistic prestige and they're kind of like you'll probably they might take it seriously here so there's Catherine Dunham a modern dance troupe leader was a resident there she's bankrolling them at this stage to stay in the hotel uh, but Behan was annoyed that the Welsh poet Thomas Dillon the guy from Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night uh-huh. that fellow he had died after a binge session that started in the hotel in 1953 so like maybe 10 years before this point and already Behan was constantly being compared to Thomas because they are both similar-ish I don't know. If, I don't know much about Thomas, but I'm assuming they were both like working class playwrights, and Thomas was a big alcoholic figure as well. And Behan didn't like being compared to him, and he really didn't like the idea of like also dying on a binge. <laughs> he didn't want to die the same way that he died, or else he'd be like constantly tied in with him. Um, but that doesn't stop his drinking. Mm. At one point, he emerges from a diabetic coma in a New York hospital. He can, wakes up in the room and makes a run for it, naked from the waist down. Desperate for a drink, he ends up roaring around the canteen where he spots a woman decanting vinegar from a pitcher into a jar. He grabs it and slurps it down in one go. As his old pal George Kleinzinger comes after him, he says, Ah, it's a bit bitter. <laughs> it's kind of bitter, George. Oh, Jesus. Now, at any point, so you said, I know you said earlier, you're like, ah, he wouldn't have wanted an intervention. Good luck trying to get this man into an intervention. Yeah. Did anyone like? Were, there must have been a ca- like accounts of people trying. I don't know if I have the exact. Because at that stage, later then on. you're like, ah, no one will take him. Yeah, yeah. He won't even write. Yeah. He'll do nothing but drunkenly talk into a dictaphone the few times you can get him. Yeah. Maybe don't try to make him write. Well, you. I don't know if they have the exact quote, but I think you saw the one. Is it? It's one of those documentaries where they're talking to Beatrice, and she's saying that he had told her that like, she feels kind of guilty that she never pulled him into. Uh, because I don't, you could, like there wouldn't have been a yeah, rehab like a, facility. 
Or maybe there was. There probably like, would have been. Yeah, but I meant to rape. She wouldn't have him committed to wherever. Yeah, because he would have been. Did he say he would have killed himself? Exactly. He was like, if you do that to me, I'll kill myself when I get out. But and then she was kind of like, he spent so much time in prison that it'd be unfair for her to put him back in prison, effectively. Mm-hmm. But that's yeah. I think he said when he if he if she put him in prison, he she he killed himself when he got out. But maybe he wouldn't. Maybe he would have dried up. But then again, like people, because uh, he killed himself by drinking, by yeah. not going in. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But. I'm sure people were trying to stop him drinking the whole time. But yeah, but then the fact that like there's they know he's a big name. Yeah. A lot of celebrity fanfare around him. So people are like, we'll pay for you to be put up in a hotel yeah. where you can go on drinking binges and be surrounded by all these other artists. And sure, did he write anything when he was there? No. No. So No. He didn't get a chance. Um, but what he did do when he was there, so Letty Cotton Pogrebin was a publicist for Behan's publisher in New York. Uh, during one of his binges, the 22-year-old was sent off to track him down, which, that's not a good idea. So she goes down, she finds him drinking in Greenwich Village, surrounded by fans. Uh, eventually, she manages to get him away from the crowd and brings him back to his hotel. Oh, so sorry, it's Hotel Bristol he's staying in at this stage. She goes to leave him in the lobby, and Behan, <laughs> he picks up a heavy ashtray and threatens to smash the front window of the place if she doesn't come up to his room, which is what we call coercion mm-hmm. these days. So she walked him up to the elevator, tries to calm him down. Once they get to the room, though, Brendan flips out again. Uh, he grabbed my shoulders, threw me on the bed, and dived on top of me. If I had any pause for any thought at all, other than the shock and fear, is that someone so totally soused could still have such strength and energy. I kicked and squirmed and pummeled him. He was beyond reason. My protests were getting futile. My struggling was getting me nowhere. I didn't scream for fear that my saviours, given the fact of this unsavory hotel, might be worse than my attacker. In full face of the terror that I might actually be raped, I uttered a plea from the primordial depths within me, please, Brendan, don't. I'm a nice Jewish girl. Those words somehow hit him like a cold shower. He bolted upright. He sat primly on the edge of the bed with one hand stroking my cheek. He said, well, for Jesus' sake, why didn't you say that in the first place? While I cringed and trembled in one corner of the room, Brendan paced the floor, suddenly sober and very intense. Now filled with remorse, Brendan began expanding on his theories about the similarity between the Irish and the Jews. She stayed friends with Behan after, foiling his assault, saying, I considered him a charming eccentric. She said years later that after that experience, I realized he was also a little mad. He's uh, what? He's a little mad. Uh, so After? Yeah, yep. Yeah. So, that's pretty bleak. That's shocking yeah that's the sort of stuff now that yeah uh, like very just as he starts rambling on about the connections between the irish and the jews that's such a pathetic like he's almost created this horrible assault then all of a sudden he's like, you, you, you know the, the irish and the jews are very similar like, what the fuck are you talking about you yeah but drunk the, yeah but even like the fact he'd stopped and went and started pacing around talking about it it is yeah it's yeah he's unhinged he's mad he is but that's also the sort of like yeah, but even just, still, starts talking in a way of. I'm does he to, think that that's a way out of? I guess so. Maybe he's gotten into a stage now where he can be as drunk and raucous as he wants, but people like his intellectual side. It was like, man, you've gone. You're a fucking. You're a creep. Yeah, yeah but worse, just still worse. be like, oh, it was a fucking. As if some woman that he's after just assaulting is going to want to hear his opinions and theories about how her people yeah, who've gone me. through the Holocaust are like his people who at this point are being represented by him. Ah, mm. uh, you don't get too much of this stuff in all the other uh, being memories. No, but then in terms of 
Irish playwrights and writers in general. Yeah. I know he is still there and he's around, but he's mm. not kind of held up in the same esteem as No. Like some like the other ones. The other like ones. Patrick Havner was a shocking dick. Yeah. But nothing like this. No. It was just he was like a pompous arsehole who was very spiteful of other people. Mm. But he'd still produce very good work. Yeah. And he didn't try to do any of that. Yeah, yeah. Christ, I hope there's a bit I was gonna say hopefully this ends on a on an up note. Oh but, there's uh, no here become here's the beginning of the descent, part four. Yeah, yeah. No, this is it's almost finished now. And it, we've here's all of the his, ninth circle. All of his quotes and stuff afterwards. I didn't know what way to put this, because even in the first bit I knew all this stuff was coming. And yeah, like his quotes and stuff were fun and like he's an interesting man, lived a very fascinating life and put out a lot of uh interesting work. But he's not a good man and that should also be remembered i guess but this final time he's in america beatrice goes to new york to fetch her husband back from the chelsea hotel so they bring him back to ireland try to get him sober but he'd have no truck with head shrinkers he said uh, a few months later she gave birth to their only child blonded Behan, in early 1963 according to valerie Behan rang her and said that he wanted to name the child after her that's Hemingway's mm. yeah as an old switcheroo because her child was named after him don't it's a terrible thing to do yeah it's <laughs> your wife but anyway little bit of levity in his final years his wife was living at five Anglesey Road in 1959 they paid just under three thousand pound for it a seven bedroom house out by the daughter can you imagine that can you imagine that only 70 75 grand now in, in today's money really yeah that's a steal that's was ten, your ten city grand a room. Cent- <laughs> city center apartment. Uh, and now back to the story. He's in and out of hospital in late 63, early 64, but he's still drinking. He was drinking in the Harbour Bar one night, now Harkins Bar, uh, when he had a heart attack. Soon afterwards, he died on the 20th of March, 1964, at the age of 41. He's often attributed on his deathbed as saying, Ah, bless you, sister. May all your sons be bishops a funny line which not true because he had a tracheotomy so i don't know at what point between the heart attack and the tracheotomy he would have had time for witticisms but he could have just said that though at some point in his hospital he had multiple hospitalizations yeah but i wonder uh, if he was he writing that in advance as well he's like ah i know this is gonna go yeah i better start writing some good quips well, he did have a good quip from much earlier where he said, there's no such thing as bad publicity except your own obituary. Mm. Which is good. And his obituary was apparently written by Flan O'Brien, who mm. he had also apparently called the cold bastard yeah. earlier. Uh, but one funny note is, yeah, that bar, Harkins Bar, if you look up their website, front page, front and center, <laughs> it says, uh, where a real Irish welcome awaits you in the heart of old Dublin, Brendan Behan's local pub. Why doesn't mention that he died there. Why did you put on an American accent for the Irish bar in Dublin? Because that's who they're aiming that at, I guess. Oh, yeah. They oh, shouldn't be advertising the fact that a man drank himself to death there. He didn't die there. He had a heart attack there. That's true. That is true. Caused by alcohol. He could have got that anywhere. He mm. only came in here for the atmosphere, the food, and the sports coverage. But, um, yeah, that's that's the end of his life, pretty much. And this. to this day, we still have two-for-one drinks on Thirsty Tuesdays. <laughs> so good, they'd kill you. Um, after his death in 1970, six years after he was dead, 
The film Boris the Boy receives a Tony Award, the first Tony Award for an Irish production. Uh, the same year, Ulrich O'Connor releases his biography of Behin, which got him in a lot of trouble for explicitly talking about Behin's bisexuality. There's another one in 1997 that goes into more detail, and I think it quotes that guy, the adult guy, Peter Arthurs. Yeah. Uh, then the other note that comes afterwards in 2010, uh, MI5 released documents about him. He was a spy? No, basically, because he was talking a lot of commie talk, and he was an IRA. Remember way back in the first episode when yes, he was an yeah. IRA man? They released, you know, what what do you call it? Statue? No, not statute of limitations. Yeah, it was. Freedom I of guess he died, Act. is it 17 years after he's released from jail the last time? Yeah, about that. I know, yeah. well, he's, oh, I know not the last time he he's went in, in for out, short, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, like, for the last big stint that he's in. Yeah. So it's only 17 years from then to then. So yeah. they would have seen, like, imagine he gets released from jail, this lad who's, like, this Irish revolutionary, mm. commie talk. Yeah. And then he becomes one of the biggest celebrities in the world yeah. within a couple of years of getting out of jail. He's getting invited to JFK's inauguration. Like, he's now got access to people. He's talking a lot of communist talk. He has Republican ties and revolutionary backgrounds. So these documents were released just through the Freedom of Information Act. They get released after a certain amount of time. He was the second shooter. That ah, he wouldn't have shot a fly. <laughs> and if he did, it would have been an accident. <laughs> they said that he or it was quoted yeah the quote for him was that he was too unstable and too drunken to be dangerous so even with all that they're like don't worry about him mm. he's only a he's only a messer but buried in glass nevin cemetery cemetery usually associated with like the revolutionaries and just fam- a lot of famous people a lot of famous people his his uh, grave has a nice little inlet in it is that the word is like a, a circle cut out of it a little statue of a man sitting cross-legged with one hand up to his ear and he's writing as if to block out the sound of the world so he can concentrate on what's important, the art. And in the other hand... And there's pint. all the pictures when I tried to get a picture of the gravestone, it's just people leaving pints on yeah. it. <laughs> but he's, he never seemed to knuckle down and take the art seriously. Or maybe he did initially, but then he swapped that all in for fame and being a drunken lout. Yeah. But I mean, so, did it if he got a couple, like you said, you know, most people won't do that. And they, even if they do, oh, yeah, some but people like, might but get one. The image of shutting, you know, hand pressed up against oh, yeah, the no, ear to shut out the distractions so he could be an artist, whereas by the end of his life, he couldn't even write. They were just getting him to talk into a recorder. Mm. Well, so, yeah, so the rest of this is just, this is what people really want. For, when you mention Behan, this is the Behan people remember the funny lines the stories the anecdotes about Behan there's hundreds of wonderful interesting stories about Behan's time in Dublin New York Paris London and beyond hundreds of interesting stories and some of them are even true mm-hmm. <laughs> what is that's a line from something but I don't know what it is <laughs> that's from Behan Behan <laughs> so Brendan Bean was once invited to Oxford to take part in a debate about the difference between prose and poetry. His opponent spoke for almost two hours. Bean rose to his feet and promised to be brief. He recited an old Dublin rhyme. There was a young fella named Rollox who worked for Ferrier Pollux. As he walked on the strand with a girl by the hand, the water came up to his ankle. That, said Bean, is prose. But if the tide had been in, it would have been poetry. <laughs> ah yes 
Ah, he wasn't that bad. He wasn't. Now this is we're into solidly into unverifiable being. This is these are just stories. Uh, being as quoted as saying, "If it was raining in soup, the Irish would go out with forks." Yeah. An author's first duty is to let down his country. But then something there. Uh, this was that, I, was that for in reaction to people didn't like the hostage, maybe in Ireland because it was it showed that ah look there's something to be said for the English side of it as well this is just a man he's a soldier yeah who's he doesn't know like in seventy one mm. that uh, with Jack O'Connell that you're like yeah this is just a poor young man without a family yeah who's sent off into a war he doesn't really understand. He joins the military, and then all of a sudden, instead of going out somewhere proper foreign, he's sent over to fucking Belfast. Yeah, yeah. They're not all bad, the Brits. Um, you going to cut that out of the podcast? No, no, no. He's, yeah, I don't know at what point he said that, but I think this is from one of his plays, but he's, as a line I saw yeah, from him when I, he said, when I came back to Dublin... I was court-martialed by the IRA in my absence and sentenced to death in my absence. So I said they could shoot me in my absence. <laughs> Which uh, I thought that might have been... I don't know if he was actually court-martialed by the IRA. Maybe he was, but I couldn't find any evidence that that happened. Okay. It sounds like something from one of his plays. But he defined the Anglo-Irish as a Protestant on a horse. Mm-hmm. It's a good way of thinking about it. He said, I have total irreverence for anything connected with society except that which makes the roads safer, the beer stronger, the food cheaper, and the old men and the old women warmer in the winter and happier in the summer. A man of the people. Uh, he, he was, said, though, because even that's like, you know, you, all the accounts of him, like we said earlier, he's very uh, generous with his money. Yeah. He was throwing it out just to people. He was. Like random people on the street. Brendan, because even that's it says in one of the documentaries, like, uh, you need the electricity bill paid? I'll yeah. get into the post office or wherever with you. Just done. Yeah. Sorted. He was, yeah, he was generous. With money, just revolute right? me when you have it. <laughs> uh, he said, the most important things to do in the world are to get something to eat, something to drink, and someone to love you. And you can drop the first and the third one if you've got lots of the second one. <laughs> that wasn't him, though. No. Was, uh, but he did, he, this is the famous one for him, I suppose. He describes himself as a drinker with a writing problem. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's when you see, like, parroted a lot. That's not a good thing. There was a story. There was that story from the documentary we watched where his sister tells the story of him, like she's queuing for the bank or the credit union or something, and he sees her and he starts going up and begging everyone in the queue for money. He keeps going up to people, and be like, "I've got ten starving children at home, and their crying is driving me mad. I need to go for a drink." <laughs> And then eventually he gets to her in the queue and he starts making a big show and he's like, Ah, Jesus, how are you doing? And he starts telling everyone, It's all right now, he's sorted because he's just met the biggest drunk in Dublin and she owes him a drink. (laughs) (laughs) Now that's just good crack. Ah, Jesus, how are you getting on, Siobhan? We'll go, I'm sorted now. She's buying the first pints. I was in, uh, so when I was on holiday, I was in Rome. Yeah. And I went into the Vatican. Yes. Or however you say it for in Italian, I don't know. Uh, but I went into the Vatican and I saw an Irish lad, I assume he was Irish, uh, wearing an old FAI jacket, like yeah. the one I do wear around in a different colour. Oh, yeah. And I was like, well, I have a little tan going on. Is If I just went up and I was like, ah, Forza, Irlande, Trapattoni. 
Yeah. I wanted to see if I could get away with it, but I was in the Sistine Chapel and they're very serious about not letting you talk. You wouldn't want, yeah. I was like, but I really thought I could get away with, like, if I just, I can yeah. do that. And then at that point, make a decision. Do I let him know or not? Yeah, yeah. That's just, you'd easily do those things and be seen as, like, some kind of artistic savant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or just a fucking gobshite. Yeah, just a gobshite. <laughs> Depends how famous you are afterwards, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Ah, uh, Jesus, I wouldn't know which one from Carlo. <laughs> um, there's a line from supposedly when he was over in Toronto that time. He was being interviewed and he said, I saw a notice that said, Drink Canada Dry, and I've just started. This is good. Yeah, yeah. Good drink. The drinking madmen. That's what they're always having. Uh, oh, Canada Dry. Yeah, I think so. I thought, yeah, that was like a. It's a mixer, is it? It's like a salsa. Oh, and maybe not then. Maybe oh, it's Canadian club or there's maybe. yeah, it's Canadian. Yeah, it's something like that. But um, on the cops, he said, "I've never seen a situation so dismal that a policeman couldn't make it worse." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, this is going back into the. In- I guess the idea that if he. I think when he died, there's rumors. People seem to think that he was divorced from his wife when he died, but they were living together and they were still married. But it seems to be the general idea that they would have got divorced if he hadn't have drank himself to death. Well, um, they wouldn't have been able to. Well, he would have moved to... Oh, yeah, it's true. Yeah. It wouldn't have been legal, but then he would have left and was went to 90, America. 95? Yeah, 95. So yeah. long... He's not making 95. Yeah, in fairness, that's how I should have caught, caught that earlier. Was just like, Why didn't she leave? Oh, because it wasn't legal. True, but he was going to leave. Maybe they could get divorced in the States. I don't know. Wouldn't have been see- I don't know. But anyway, you just be separated, move to another country. But I suppose him being seen as a sort of, there's, like he, wo- yeah, maybe he would have come back to Ireland, but it seemed like he was angling to getting the fuck out of Ireland. Get the fuck out of Ireland to spend a few years abroad and then start and then writing again home. about how amazing Ireland is. Maybe. And that, yeah, that's a possible trajectory. But there's a line from saying, I regard Ireland in the same way as Sean O'Casey. It's a great country to get a letter from. <laughs> that's, uh, that's very good. It is. Uh, it's, yeah. Um, we should that's, have record. Yeah. That's one of his better. Ads. That is a yeah. good one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Ah, this is true today. Yeah, but there's a story so sort of thrown around a lot, which I don't know. Uh, so Guinness apparently approached him. This doesn't sound true, but <laughs> they approached him about creating a new slogan for Guinness. He accepted the job on the condition that they send him a case of Guinness for every week it took him to write it. Straight off the bat. Bad idea. Bad idea. That's yeah, a bad yeah. idea. After a few weeks of no new slogan, the Guinness people went to Behan to ask what was taking so long. Where was their slogan? At which point he slurred the insightful lines, Guinness gets you drunk. That was his slogan. <laughs> I, for, I genuinely thought you were going to say, Guinness is good for you. That was one for a while. That was one, yeah. It's... And that's a better one than Guinness gets you drunk. Although... They're both great. It's good prose. It is. Uh, <laughs> if the title had been in, it would have been poetry. <laughs> um, yeah, and then we talked about the Owl Triangle not being his. We talked about that in the Patreon. But this is the last bit then. This is from Dave Hannigan, who wrote the book on Brendan Behan's Rise and Fall in America. He said the book starts in September 1960, and he was basically done as a writer at that point. He was working on a play from when he arrived in America called Richard's Cork Leg, which he never finished. All the books that came out after this period is him speaking into a microphone and somebody typing it up. 
they're basically milking him as a writer. His two great plays, The Querfell and the Hostage, are done and the Borst of the Boy is finished. He's on a slide into oblivion. So that's that's him. Mm. The Borst of the Boy. Tough life. Yeah. A tough a tough life. Yeah. It is that I know there's no getting over like the horrible things he did do. Yeah. But Jesus it wasn't the ideal start. Like, no, from the age of five, well, basically being drunk. A, oh yeah, basically being drunk. Sure. And then, yeah, but he makes bad decisions to go yeah. to Liverpool without the IRA's knowledge, or did they have it? Yeah. Uh, and spend a bunch. Of, like he basically spent was it eight year or nine years basically in jail. Three few, and then a few four, months I off. Think, yeah. And, yeah. So because he was like it was or sixteen to twenty four with a few months in between. Yeah. Is basically, and then afterwards a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bits and pieces in and out. So he's basically drunk for 11 years. Yeah. Then, ni- like, eight to nine years of being in a penitentiary. Yeah. And then he's led away, and not instantly. Well, he goes to France. And not long after that, he comes back, and he's basically just given the world. Yeah. You know, like, it's does. Going, like, it's... F- find me a man who could deal with that. Yeah, yeah, that's true. He has none of the framework to deal with it. And there was no one looking out for him. By the sounds of it, either. But it's the times. Beatrice, well. probably, but even that. But I don't know what, yeah. If she, the only person was, who's looking out for you, you threaten to kill yourself if they try to help you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she wasn't, yeah, in a position, I suppose. But in terms of, like, I don't know. It's hard to know. It did sound like people were trying to help him in the Chelsea Hotel. There was, I think, this first producer goes over and helps Beatrice bring him back from the hotel that last time. I'm sure there were people who cared about him. Yeah, because even that's like all of the the quotes they had about like the other Irish writers mm. at the time, and yes. like, and like how Flan called to him. They're like, did you just piss him off x amount of times, or he's like, I'm done with you. Yeah, yeah. Like well, I'm not as yeah, it happens yeah. with like anyone who has like, substance abuse issues. At a some at a certain point, people aren't going to come back. That's true. But that that reminds me of a line that could finish this off now. Unless you have any other points, I have a couple. A couple of <laughs> the Glen of Arlo. But the because uh, he was friends of yeah he, he calls Flannery Bryan's writing cold or maybe he didn't that wasn't that thing from Richard Seavers I think oh it's his that. writing that was cold I thought yeah, it yeah. Was, which is not what no yeah. I it, I don't know it doesn't do anything for him but Flan wrote his obituary there's a line in his Could obituary you imagine trying to read Flan O'Brien locked locked <laughs> he's like this makes too much sense yes. Flan it's too straightforward <laughs> this is very cold Flan um. Yeah, and his obituary said he's in fact more a player than a playwright. But the line I was thinking of that Stephen told me last night was apparently Flann O'Brien, Patrick Kavanagh, and Brendan Behan had been out drinking all the night before, kept drinking through until the morning, and they were standing outside some pub waiting for it to open the next morning so they could keep drinking. And Behan turned to the other two boys and said, Ah, there's no characters left in Dublin anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a great line. It's you. You're the yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's a mad old bastard, and he shouldn't have done all the stuff he did. But he knew how to turn a phrase, or at least people have turned a lot of phrases and stuck his name at the yeah. end of it. If you take out the garbles and the burps and the ten-second pauses between things, you edit it down a little. God, he could turn a phrase. And it's not bad. But well, that's the end of being season. Good luck. Shafter. Good night. 
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.